Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. Yes, yeah, so let me tell you, as um, myself included and a lot of my colleagues um, are um, very motivated to do something about this disease. So in a way, you are currently you know, interviewing me. I'm sitting at home, right? And uh, a lot of us are. And we all think about how we're going to get out of this place. <laughs> Is the vaccine going to be enough or not? We've been doing this for over a year. So you can imagine that no matter who it is, they are all thinking about what can they do for COVID, okay? If you're a biochemist, you're thinking about, okay, what expertise do I have that I can apply it to? If I'm a musician, what can I do to apply it to it? If I'm a reporter, what can I do to apply it, right? Everybody is doing that. You can imagine you have kids, they're going to ask you, well, you're a researcher, dad, why don't you do something to figure this out? <laughs> so our motivation level collectively is extremely high. That's Dr. Avi Nath talking about COVID-19. He's intramural clinical director of the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the U.S. National Institutes of Health, NIH. You will hear more from him and about him in this podcast. In my reporting, I speak with scientists around the world, and this podcast is a way to share more of what I find out. This podcast takes you into the science, and it's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals that are part of the nature portfolio. A lot of papers are published there. Those are written by working scientists and are about the latest aspects of their research. And a number of these journals offer science journalism. These pieces are done by science journalists like me. This podcast episode is one of several I'm producing on long COVID, which is this difficult diversity of symptoms that people experience after recovering from COVID-19. Scientists are working on what might be causing long COVID. I'm doing a story on long COVID for Nature Methods. After recovering from COVID-19, people are, of course, grateful and relieved. They've survived a scary ordeal. But many people find that even months after their infection, they struggle with symptoms. And those symptoms can include difficulty breathing, muscle or joint pain, fatigue, heart palpitations. They might have sustained damage to their lungs, heart, and kidneys. And they might experience what is called brain fog. When the symptoms are severe, the lives of many, many people get completely derailed. Here's Avinath. So uh, now talking specifically about the long haul COVID, there is a huge interest. You can see the socioeconomic consequences of that are phenomenal. Right? You have um, millions and millions of people who are probably going to be affected, well, even if you got rid of the virus today. And the average age is 40 of uh, the long haul patients. Yeah. Uh, so they are in the most um, productive phases of their lives. It's not the uh, my data, It's and it may not be very accurate data, but you know, data is coming out. But that's what it suggests that around, that's the age group around what um, most of these patients are dropping. The average age of people with long COVID is 40. Wow. Peter Brodin at Karolinska Institute told me that the majority of cases of acute COVID-19, that means people with life-threatening illness, are men. And the majority of people with long COVID are women. Around the world, clinics are now focusing on treating people with long COVID, sometimes called long-haul COVID. They are beginning to study what underlies this array of symptoms, post-acute SARS-CoV-2 syndrome, they're called collectively. NIH has launched a big research project focused just on this, and it's quite broad in its scope. Avinath explains. Because they want to make sure you're not missing some other organ involvement, right? 
I mean, we are focused on the brain. That's our area of expertise. But, you know, the virus affects the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, can affect a number of other things in the acute phase. So a multidisciplinary approach makes a lot of sense. The virus wreaks havoc throughout the body. In the hospital, physicians and staff do their best to keep people alive. With long COVID, what is important is to distinguish the scope and breadth of what ails people. So I've talked to at least 200 patients myself, okay, with all these things. And we've brought in a number of these patients uh, to NIH to study them. We're going to bring in more. And so roughly speaking, at least the way I look at it, you can divide them into three broad categories. And these are individuals who have, once you've excluded all the end organ damage and you excluded all the patients who had some underlying diabetes or other hypertension or whatever it is, you get rid of all that stuff. Now you're left with a more smaller subpopulation of these long haul patients, you can divide them into three categories. One is the brain fog. Okay. The second is uh, patients who complain of dysautonomia. That means they have autonomic symptoms. Okay. And I'll describe them in just a bit. And the third patient is the exercise intolerance. So let's start with the exercise intolerance first. So, so the people call it fatigue, but it's not fatigue. It's not like when you run a marathon and you get tired and you relax and you'll get better again. That's not the kind of fatigue they complain of. They, it is exercise and tolerance. And an example I'll give you of a cardiologist who was in New York. She got infected and she um, uh, then recovered from it. And then she says that she was developed um, this exercise intolerance. She couldn't even do telemedicine any longer. She says that uh, her uh, her office was the first floor. Uh, on the second floor of her um, of her apartment. And so she has to take a flight of stairs. When she gets up there, she's so exhausted, she has to lie down now for the rest of the day. And because she's a cardiologist, she got all kinds of cardiac workup and pulmonary workup. They can't find anything wrong with her. Yeah. So it's a very strange type of exercise. Now, that's an extreme phase of exercise intolerance, but various degrees of it are what these patients are complaining of. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the brain fog is an interesting one. So here, patients complain of difficulty finding names. They can't remember names. They're trying to think about what's it called, what's it called. I mean, that happens to me once in a while too, but they they notice that uh, it's an acute change, right? And they also complain of an interesting type of memory lapse. What it is, is that they can remember objects they cannot remember time. So they will tell you. Cannot remember time. Time of when the event occurred. So they'll, let's see, you ask them, okay, what did you have for breakfast? They'll tell you, well, I ate, you know, this, that, or the other. But I can't remember whether I ate it today or I ate it yesterday or was it a week ago? Yeah. So it's a very bizarre type of a uh, you know, memory loss that they have. And then there are emotional things too, mood disorders that occur. And so I'll give you an example of another person who works in the construction uh, here at NIH. And uh, he recovered from COVID. And then this was an older individual. He had no psychiatric history of any sort, you know, hell and hearty otherwise. And he says, all of a sudden, he started getting suicidal ideation. He says, there's no reason for me to want to kill myself, but I can't control it. So he got scared of himself, goes and admits himself in the hospital. He was there for a month. Wow. Now he's doing fine after that. These syndromes that just affect the brain and central nervous system all seem to be quite different. But Avinath sees a pattern. If you look at these syndromes, they are defining very particular areas within the brain. Okay. 
And uh, so there are certain areas in the brain that are being affected in these individuals. And that's what is causing these kind of symptoms. And then lastly is this category, what I call dysautonomia. And that, so people call it POT syndrome, most people. Are, and what it is, is that you, um, they complain of their heart racing, you know, they can't control it. Um, oftentimes they stand up, they get dizzy. And so their blood pressure falls. Um, they can also develop um, a difficulty with um, uh, either constipation or they can get uh, diarrhea. Um, and they can get um, a tingling in their hands and fingers because the blood vessels constrict. Yeah. So they can get a wide variety of symptoms and autonomic symptoms. And there was one uh, neurologist I talked to. She says that her uh, this dysphagia was so bad that she has to lie down all the time. And even while she's talking to me, she cannot sit up and talk because when she sits up, she can't think any longer. Her blood pressure falls. I mean, these guys are are living, but they're not really living. They're just barely alive. Long COVID arrives and stays. And sometimes things get better on their own. So, and I've talked to a lot of people now. After the first phase, a month later, they were developing all these symptoms. I followed up with them and some are getting better. Okay. Not everybody has gotten better. Yeah, but, um, you know, more and more time lapses, more and more people do spontaneously get, uh, keep getting better to some degree. So that is certainly there. Now, do they get better to the degree where they can now resume their normal activities and stuff? That varies from individual to individual. Um, but um, yes, there is a little bit of hope in that regard. Some people with long COVID say they feel better when they receive the vaccination against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, the thing is, this is known to occur in other diseases. So uh, patients with um, ME-CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome, they will also tell you if they get the flu vaccine or something, they actually get better. But what they will also tell you, it doesn't last that long. So about a month or something or whatever, and then it comes back. They also, if they have undergo surgery or something, they'll feel better for a little while, and then it goes back. Um, They are very rare individuals to say they got completely cured, actually. But... um, um, most often, so I think these patients are still early, but the question to ask these individuals is, is they, that are saying they got better after the vaccination, the question to ask them is how long? For now, there is no clear treatment strategy for long COVID, certainly not a quick fix, says Avinath. No, it's not a quick fix. But what it does tell you is about the underlying pathophysiology. Why is it that if you produce this acute inflammation, if people think that all these long-haul COVIDs are inflammatory syndromes, then why is it you produce even more inflammation, they actually get better? That's the question you want to ask. And so I don't know the answer to that, but I, I have some hypotheses that I'm willing to share. COVID-19 is a new disease caused by a virus not seen before. Long COVID is new too. And in labs like Avinath and his group, researchers are exploring what might be the underlying cause of long-haul COVID. It seems clear the virus is what is starting people's troubles. But we know here the virus comes first, right? I mean, you never have the virus, you never have the long haul. So the virus did something to initiate the process. Now the virus may be gone, but the music lingers on. 
right? And so, but what is lingering? Is it the immune system that's lingering or is it parts of the virus that are lingering? Avinath has long studied viral diseases and persistent symptoms. In a number of instances, he has encountered conditions that were thought to be post-viral syndromes of an immune system still in overdrive from an infection. My career has been spent studying viruses, studying restricted viral replication, persistent viruses. And we've shown in many different diseases where people think that these are all immune-mediated and you look hard enough, you actually find the virus was missed in these patients. One was a patient with dengue. And this patient was thought to have some immune-mediated phenomenon treated for years with that probably had multiple sclerosis. We gave them all kinds of immune suppressive drugs, more and more powerful. Ultimately, the patient died. Okay. Then we looked at the brain there at the time of autopsy, and we actually found there was dengue virus all over the place. And, uh, and this patient had been, we, people had looked at his spinal fluid for PCR for all kinds of arboviruses, including they never found anything. Okay. They, but the thing is, and that phenomenon is also known in measles. Measles is a classical one. And here is something funky and kind of spooky and kind of clever that these viruses can do. It's called restricted replication. Restricted viral replication is yet another way viruses evolve and survive. And it could be a way for viruses to be able to combine with other viruses and form new ones. Avinath explains how restricted viral replication works. The virus in the brain is not a, uh, is mutated, okay? Mutated to whereby it doesn't form a complete viral particle. It is restricted viral replication. It can form some RNA, it'll form some proteins, and even has the ability to go from cell to cell but it won't come outside the cell. So there's a disease called uh, SSPE, the subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Okay. That occurs in children after measles infection. And uh, so you can get measles, you recover from it. And a few months or years later, sometimes even years later, the child now develops a progressive neurological syndrome. And uh, eventually the child will die from it. And you can look for measles everywhere you're not going to find it. You look at the brain, it's loaded with the virus. But if you sequence it, it has two important mutations there. One is in the matrix protein, and the other is in the, in the fusion protein. The mutation in the matrix protein prevents the virus from forming a complete viral particle. Okay. The mutation in the fusion protein causes the, the virus to become more fusogenic. So now it's present in the neuron. When it sees the next neuron, it fuses the cell membrane there. And now the RNA with the protein gets from one cell to the next. Wow, that is insidious and clever in evolutionary okay. speaking, although that yes. might not be. Viruses uh, are smarter than we think. <laughs> wow, what a way to get around, huh? Yeah, huh. so I think that's how these viruses are getting transmitted. You don't need the complete viral replication. You need defective viral sequences. Okay, HIV is another example. You can control HIV really well, but if you look at the brain, there's a lot of defective viral sequences sitting there. Viruses can linger in the body after infection. This is also true with SARS-CoV-2. Rockefeller University researcher Michel Nussenzweig and his team, as well as colleagues from other institutions, found that after COVID-19, people had viral RNA and protein in their intestines. These biomedical souvenirs, these viral remnants, are known to occur in other viral infections. 
There are lots of examples of that. Lots of, I mean, Ebola is a good example. Yeah. So I was involved in the Ebola epidemic. In fact, I went down to Liberia, saw all these patients with neurological complications there. We still have a cohort of 200 patients we follow. So we did that in collaboration with NIID. They were the primary guys that they were kind enough to involve me. But um, what they found was that they were looking at these patients' seminal plasma after they recovered. And they found that up to nine months, you could find virus by PCR in their seminal fluid. Yeah. Wow. Now, so it's somewhere in their testicular tissue or it's, it's yeah, just feeding be. from somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. The thing is that, but it wasn't being sexually transmitted at that time. So it's, that's why the restricted viral replication is so important. It must have acquired some mutations, but it's still coming out. Yeah. I see, but it doesn't mean that that is infectious, and it doesn't. And they were no longer sick, or were they also still? No, no, they have they have recovered. Yeah. I see. That's you a little see? spooky. This idea that you you have COVID, you yeah. had COVID, so and a lot then you of still viruses have... come out that way. Yeah. Now the thing is, there must be an advantage to the virus to come out in a restricted form. It may. I think the opportunity for the virus to recombine with others to form new viruses must be there. It must evolve that way. As part of NIH's large-scale program devoted to long COVID, there will be an autopsy cohort made up of people who had long COVID and agreed to donate their bodies to science after they have died. Their bodies will be studied in great depth to better understand what kind of damage SARS-CoV-2 has done to their body. Scientists will be studying a dedicated group of people now suffering from long COVID. The way they will be studied is far beyond the occasional conversation. I'm a virologist, so I look at viruses. I'm going to look at very deeply at any evidence of restricted viral replication, remnants of the virus or any signature of it. And with the virus comes the immune system. So we're going to look at the immunology in great depth. But you cannot do that without imaging the brain. And the advantage of the intramural and NIH program is they have the best toys that anybody does. So we're going to put those individuals to a seven Tesla scanner and try to see if we can find these um, uh, remnants of uh, vascular pathology that we demonstrated at autopsy. Can we actually find it by imaging? So that's our goal. Uh, and, uh, and then, as I mentioned, we will do neurotransmitters. We have a really good program in studying the autonomic nervous system here. This guy, David Goldstein, does a fabulous job. So we've partnered with him, and he's going to, he's very passionate to study these patients. So he will do all the neurotransmitter analysis. Avinath and his group will assess people and analyze biopsies in many ways. Perhaps there are viral signatures in these people's bodies that have been missed. It will take high-resolution sleuthing. We're going to admit them to the hospital for a few days, and we're going to do high-resolution MRI scans. We'll look at the spinal fluid. We will do the single-cell sequencing of the cells from the spinal fluid. Um, we'll look at the blood. Um, uh, you know, we're going to do um, do sleep studies on them. You know, functional MRI, do cognitive batteries, very detailed autonomic testing on each one of them. Yeah. So we'll be uh, we'll study them to um, in great depth. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Avi Nath, the Intramural Clinical Director of the NIH National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the NIH did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. 